This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Hi, I'm Jane Pauley, and this is our Sunday Morning Extra. This weekend, Turner Classics movie host Ben Mankiewicz spent some time with Richard Dreyfus from American Graffiti to Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and, of course, Jaws. He won an Oscar in 1978 for The Goodbye Girl. At age 72, he's still keeping busy, while looking back on more than 50 years in Hollywood. Here's their conversation. Before we get into the big movies, uh, just tell me, uh, remind us uh, how you lied your way into the Big Valley. It's a good story. Uh, it's uh, The Actor's Oath. You know, the actor's oath is you do whatever it is they ask you to do, and you say, I, I was raised on a ranch outside of Las Vegas. Of course I know how to ride. And, and Just to be clear to people, <laughs> you were raised in New York. In Brooklyn, yeah. and I'd never seen a horse. And, um, and But as I walked in the door, the director of the segment was Paul Enrich. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah. From Casablanca. You betcha. Right. And I said, it's an honor to meet you, Mr. Henry. And he said, thank you very much. (laughs) And I read, and then he said, do you know how to ride? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, (laughs) no problem. I I was literally raised on a ranch outside of Las Vegas, no problem. Reinforcing the original lie. Yeah. So, uh, we get to the ranch, and uh, I go over to the head wrangler, and I said, uh, uh, how, do you, uh, how do you ride one? And he goes, oh, damn it. <laughs> and he said, this, it's harder than just riding. So I had to drive a buckboard with two little children on it. 
Like these guys, like this is this is hard. They take it seriously. You can't wing this. Right. right. And they take its danger seriously. Right. But they also take actors for being what they are, which is kind of silly. So uh, there, he's cursing me, and but he's with a good humor. And then Peter Breck, one of the regulars on the show, walked over to me while he was putting on his black gloves, and he said to me, "Never forget." that this animal has a brain this big. <laughs> and then he clenched his fist and he hit that horse right in the mouth. Really? And I mean as hard as he could. And the horse went, <laughs> and then he walked away, Peter. And I knew that the horse said to all the other horses, he hit me because of the kid. Oh, right. <laughs> and so I was totally terrified. Right, so you took that on yourself. Uh, and uh, then I got with the two kids, and the moment they said action, they said cut, <laughs> because they could see I was out of control, like, wow. <laughs> and they have, uh, the two kids were the problem, you know. Um, they only went action, and before you could take a breath, the whole crew was yelling, <laughs> and Henri said, do you know why you got this part? And I said, uh, uh, I gave a good reading. And he said, no, it is because you said it is an honor to meet you, Mr. Henri. <laughs> <laughs> I like a guy who worked with Bergman and Bogart and Casablanca. And now he's got some <laughs> lying Jew from New York. <laughs> Saying he knows how to ride a horse. Another short guy. Yeah, yeah, no, that's right. Um, uh, So I want to ask you start with the uh, ask you about the graduate. I just want to point out that uh, my daughter has uh, is currently on season four of Bewitched, and and that part of you will be by far the most exciting thing when I tell her that. (laughs) Uh, She'll be like, Ah, Jaws. I don't. She doesn't know from Jaws, right? But Bewitched, serious business. Yeah. What a star you're meeting. Well. You when knew I, Samantha. When I finished uh, The Big Valley, Barbara Stanwyck walked up to me, and I knew everything there was to know about Barbara Stanwyck. Yeah. She walked up to me, and she said, you're the best actor who's ever guest starred on this show. And she walked away. And I, of course, believed her. So I invited all of my friends and all of my family to watch the show with me, which I had never done and will never ever do again, because as the show unfolded, I backed up unconsciously against the far wall of the room with my mouth, like, because I was terrible, (laughs) and I knew why Barbara Stanwyck had said that. She said to herself, if someone doesn't say something nice to this kid, he's going to blow his brains out. (laughs) And so she said I was the best actor. Ah, In fact, and I can't explain this, I was not a good actor. I was vivid, and I was... And I was... um, Energetic? Energetic and like that. But if you watch the performances I gave over 11 years... None of them are even close to being acceptable. And then I got my first job in a, in a real feature 
and I was good from that moment on. So that great line, though, you have in The Graduate, your only line, uh, shall I get the cops, I'll get the cops. Um, do people know that line? Do people quote that line? Oh, all the time. Yeah. Um, so, uh, but you were hoping to be cast as Benjamin, right? No. 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 Every kid in New York and L.A. wanted that role, of course. But I knew, number one, I wasn't old enough. Right. I was still in school. But I just wanted to get to Mike. Right. There were lots of casting levels, and I wanted to get to Mike. Mike Nichols. And Mike Nichols. And on, and, and I have to say this. I had uh, been driving through Hollywood one day. I drove past the Greyhound station, and I picked up a guy who needed a ride. He was a dwarf, and he was, all of his bags were in his arms, and he just needed a place to stay. And I, I drove him there, and we talked. And he said, I said, what are you doing here in L.A.? And he said, like you, I'm trying to make it in Hollywood. I said, well, good luck. And when I went on the casting for, uh, he was the first level casting. He was the casting director, or he yeah. was, yeah. Uh, for which? For for the graduate. For the graduate. Oh. <laughs> he had gotten a job, and he was doing that. And I walked in, he, and he went, and I went. The guy who gave me a ride. The great guy who gave me yeah. a ride. Yeah. So you got a part. So I went up to the second level. Then I went up to the third level, and then I was told, next Tuesday night, you're going to see Mike. And that's what I wanted. Right. And on that Tuesday, I was told. Mike had to fly to New York because uh, he's seeing an actor named Dustin Hoffman. And at the name Dustin Hoffman, I swear to God this is true, I felt the wind of inevitability go right up the back of my neck. Even though you, you didn't know him? I didn't know him. I, didn't, I never knew what he looked like. I just heard the name. I and didn't... like Dustin himself, he knew Dustin Farnham, and he chose it. And I heard his name, and I knew. And within a week, everyone else knew. Right. But Mike is, was a guy of such class, for real, that he gave everyone who had reached a certain level in the casting process a job in the film. Somewhere. They'd give you something. Yeah. yeah. So he... he I was told I was in the movie, and I went to meet him, and he says, you prepared? And I said, yeah, I was studying with Stella all week long. And he said, okay, whenever you're ready. And I went, I'm ready. Go ahead. Shall I call the cops? I'll call the cops. He said, you got the rule. <laughs> Well, I can see why you were so confident. I mean, you nailed it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so then we go six years later. We're at, I guess, five years later before casting starts. And all of a sudden, I mean, did you know at the time, like, hey, man, this is Francis Ford Coppola producing. This is George Lucas directing. Uh, I mean, did you sense, because you couldn't have known, uh, that these were, these were guys with vision? No. I, as a matter of fact, was the only member of the cast who did not know that we were shooting a classic. I just thought we were shooting a, a little teenage movie. So on American Graffiti, Ron Howard, Harrison Ford, Cindy Williams, they have some sense that this is something special? Oh, yeah. Everyone did. 
everyone. And I, because people don't remember, and why should they, that there had been a little wavelet of nostalgia for the mm-hmm. uh, 50s and 60s already. Right. There had already been one. And I thought we were overdue and late. You mean like where the boys are? Or like I don't or, yeah. remember what they... No, no. It was not as well known as that. It was just a little cultural thing. Right. Oh, you thought that time was sort of past in America. Right. right. I got you. Right. So we shot this movie and had a blast. And George um, misled me on in many ways. One of the ways was that he is the only director I've ever met who doesn't like directing. And, and he would... We'd be doing a scene, me and Ron and and uh, someone, and he'd come up and say, "Is that the way you want to do it?" <laughs> and I said, "I would say, yeah." That was your George Lucas impersonation. That was my George Lucas. Okay, sorry, yeah. yeah, and he would say, "Okay, Haskell, what is it? that," and then that was it. And he was wearing a fur parka because it was freezing cold at night in San Francisco. Right. And was it we San Francisco were, or Fresno or both? We were shooting it in in San Francisco, and we may have shot in Petaluma too. Mm-hmm. I think doesn't matter. Well, and um, it's cold. <laughs> yeah, it's close. And then, and I I really did get the 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 feeling that George George doesn't like directing. And I will tell you what, co- I, what I think is a coincidence, and I've yet, even now, I've totally forgotten to ask him after 50 years. I had done my conscientious objector um, alternative service working at L.A. County Hospital in the basement. Then I saw THX 1138. His debut film. Yeah. And I, I recognized some of the um, locations as being in the basement of L.A. County Hospital. And I've, I, I didn't get it from George, but other people, I, I seem to have gotten it in my head that that's where he had shot it as a student uh, project. And, um, but I never really confirmed it. And I saw it, I liked it, and then I was asked to audition for graffiti. So you had to audition for graffiti like everybody else. Oh, yeah. I mean, there was no, like, nobody thought, oh, I've seen this guy on stage, and or I've seen him in Bewitched or Big Valley, and we want, this Not, is the guy we want. No, 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 as the French say, to no. Um, actually, I had made a breakthrough uh, in two plays, both local, and the second one was at the taper. And who saw me were the writers of graffiti, and they had kind of passed the word along. But I had made a, a, a big splash in this play and was the first in my career. <laughs> uh, what about its, um, What about Spielberg? What did you... You saw something in him? Yeah. Stephen is... Yeah. Uh, Stephen had called me and said, I want to meet you about Jaws. Don't read the book. To this day, I've never read the book. That's how good an actor I am with directors. <laughs> and uh, 
we met. He didn't want you to have any preconceived notions about yeah. how the character should be. Yeah, and for a very good reason. He said, I want to make a bullet. He wanted to make a one a movie about one thing with tremendous velocity and momentum. And there was oodles, apparently, of subplots in yeah. the book. He didn't want any of that. So I didn't. And he told me the story, and it was exciting. He said, you want to do it? And I went, no. <laughs> he said, why? And I said, because I'd rather watch this movie than shoot it. Because, I, because I'm an idiot. I mean, there's really no other explanation. I, uh, I'm pretty stupid when it comes to certain things. And I didn't know enough about the movie-making process. So when it was over, I actually went on some talk show in New York and I said, oh, it's going to be a, a failure. And, <laughs> and I said all these things that I then went back and apologized for saying. The uh, Did you, uh, as you were making it, did the three of you, uh, Scheider and Shaw and you, did you guys, did the shark work for you guys? Did you, you know, I mean, I know it didn't literally work, but did you buy it as you're shooting those scenes? Like the, no. Right. First, they knew from the beginning. What happened was they had forgotten to ask themselves one question, which was, has any other film ever been attempted on the real ocean? No. I wonder why. <laughs> now we knew why. And so the shark, which had no grounding, would come up and go, <laughs> and fall in. Sink. So we knew, and the radio mics were so ubiquitous on the island, you could follow the plot of making the movie just by walking down a street and hearing from all sides, the, oh, the shark is not working. <laughs> the shark is not working. The shark is not. And you could just hear it. So one day my, uh, you heard... The shark is working. The shark is what? The, sh the boat is sinking. The boat is sinking. And I was on that boat. <laughs> and we were sinking in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. We had ripped the anchor out. And Freddie Zendar, the, the head of the stunt people, had jumped to the wheel and was trying to power the boat onto the beach at Chappaquiddick Island screaming all the time, this is the worst, <laughs> this is the worst. And Stephen, with his uh, megaphone, is going, get the actors off the boat, please, get the actors off the boat. <laughs> and safety boats are coming, and it's a six-foot swell, and, you know, the guys running the safety boats are all local kids, and I'm trying to help a 70-year-old sound man get his leg over the side of the boat, holding his $50,000 Nagra <laughs> tape recorder. And Stephen goes, get the actors off the boat, please. I said, Stephen, he's 70 years old. <laughs> get the actors <laughs> off the boat. <laughs> so you can use it or not. <laughs> and so we lost a Nagra a week. Is that right? Yeah. We, on the very first day of shooting... We're in a boat, a little boat, and it was just doing this, and then water went plump, and the guy goes, 
That's a wrap for sound. <laughs> <laughs> so you don't have any feel that you've made something great. But you did have faith in Spielberg. Right. If you went and looked and said, pick out the person of authority on this set, you'd never pick Stephen on the first, on Jaws. After that, no problem. You know, he was crowned and anointed. So, you know, they considered uh, some pretty big actors, including John Voight and Jeff Bridges, for your part. Uh, does that still make you feel good? That, uh, and that George Lucas was like, no, you should maybe look at Richard Dreyfuss. Uh, actually, I didn't know that until just this minute. That Lucas... That, no, that the, those two actors that you mentioned were, be, were mentioned. Yeah, I mean, they were, you know, they were emerging as very big stars right around then. And... I had told Stephen some years later about an experience I had of being... Um, deal broke out of a film. And when I was describing to him what they had said and done to get me to quit a movie, Stephen said, oh yeah, that's just what we had to do to get you into Jaws. Hmm. And, and But they had mentioned Timothy Bottoms. Yeah, right, he was among them too. Yeah, so he was the only one I knew about. Yeah. And, uh, and I never knew about George's endorsement. Well, George's endorsement definitely happened, and because Stephen didn't want a giant established star, you know, Heston wanted uh, to play Scheider's part, wanted to play Brody, and and you know, it's Heston, and it's you know, nineteen seventy-five, still a big deal. And but Spielberg thought his screen presence would overpower right. the other actors. He uh, Roy was second to an actor whose name I don't know, but I knew his work. And unfortunately, this guy will never know that he was in first place for this part. But he was busy. Yeah. And that and Roy was second. And then Lee Marvin and Sir. Sterling Hayden. Right. And then Robert. And, and Robert and Roy had this thing about billing and they were always arguing about billing and I said to Roy one day what, do you, what difference does it make come on you guys should st and Roy turned to me and said wait a minute I don't understand why you're not bothered we all have the same billing and I went we do <laughs> like you <laughs> thought this is great <laughs> no Roy idea. Scheider and Robert Shaw it's fantastic yeah. Yeah. I thought it would say and Richard Dreyfuss, right, right, right. as Ludd. That's what they said on Big Valley. Um, so uh, after Jaws, uh, you immediately start lobbying Spielberg for, for Close Encounters. In the middle of Jaws. In the middle of Jaws. Because they came to the island, um, Mike Phillips, Michael Phillips. And, Who's Michael uh, Phillips, the, the producer? producer? And uh, they started talking, he started talking about the film. And when I understood what the film was, originally it was to star Gene Hackman, you know, a lifer in the military, 30-year man, and a, you know, gown-home guy. And then in the middle of Jaws, in talking to me about the film, he said that he was thinking of changing that character. And... 
I said, to what? And he went, well, to someone more, um, ah, forget it. And I went, <laughs> right. I just focused. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I decided that I would badmouth every actor ever born uh, that could possibly play that role. And I did. Those actors were? Uh, they were um, De Niro, Pacino, um, every actor, you name it. What would it. you say about De Niro? I mean, I get I, it's I said, not... I said, De Niro has no sense of humor. <laughs> and I would say, Pacino's crazy. <laughs> and I, I would just walk by his desk right, right. and go, yeah. oh. Right. Um, <laughs> Gene Hackman's impossible to work with. Like yeah. That. And then I said, one day, I said, Stephen, you need a child. And he looked up and said, you got the part. And that was not only smart of Richard, it was, it perfectly encapsulated our relationship because I knew that that character had to have a childlike quality. And I knew also that I had it. And I was, in a, in a sense, I knew that I was being hired at that time for having that quality and also the quality of awe. Right. And I knew it. And that's why I got it. Um, it also suggests to me that, that Spielberg was seeing what Jaws was and I think probably sensed, oh, this guy's about to be a big star. He, you might not know it yet, but he knew it. Well, I think what started to happen is that once we got back to Los Angeles and we were shooting in the tank for just about a week or a week and a half, I would end the night and I would go with him to his office and work on the film with him, just throwing out ideas or huh. like that. And uh, I would park without realizing it in the wrong parking place because one day in the morning they called and Stephen looked at me and said, uh, you're under arrest. I said, really? Why? He says... Uh, you parked in Alfred Hitchcock's space. <laughs> so I ran out to the car and moved it. But um, by that time, I knew I, I, if I didn't have an inside track for that role, I should have. Right. And I made no bones about it because I had the qualities that they needed for real. And they didn't have to guess. And... He, didn't, he wasn't going to have this character have any affairs. He was just going to be this... Awestruck, so, grown-up kid. Awestruck, grown-up, seriously committed. Right. Right. And, um, and also, you knew that Stephen could see this story through this character's eyes. And if you see, when you see the film, you know that every actor in the third act has the same quality on his face. They're all children. All the technicians, all the governors, all the, everyone in that last sequence has, have got this great quality of childlike wonder. And he needed it. 
and I knew it. And when I, when I see the film now, I'll watch that last sequence, and I'm still amazed at how many of those technicians had that quality. Is, is that the Richard Dreyfuss movie you, you watch most? Oh, no. Oh, no, no. Um, <laughs> it is the movie that is asked about more than any other. Really? And so when I've done autograph um, convention things, right. I always say to the audience, I know more about Jaws than anyone else in the world, and um, if you ask me a question, here's the deal. If you ask me a question that I cannot answer about Jaws, I'll give you ten bucks. If, however, you ask me a question that I can answer, you give me ten bucks. And I am way ahead on this one. Oh, people, they, they rise to the challenge. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, you, least, ta- and you take their ten dollars. I certainly do. You know why you do? It's a bet. you got to pay a bet. Hey, yeah. And I made it clear. Yeah, you know? that's right. And the, the first one who ever beat me was mm-hmm. a ten-year-old girl. What was the question you made? I have no idea. <laughs> but I just remember looking at her and going, oh. Richard, thank you. This was great. I really, it's so Thanks always great to talk to you. Thank you. One of the few people I know who has a job that I envy. Oh, that's great to hear. Well, you have a job I envy, except I'd be horrible at it. <laughs> um, It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.